Recovery Elevator, episode 228. Just understanding that I have potential and that I am now capable of doing what it takes to, to achieve the things I want in life. And I have a contribution to make. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Sarah. She's 36 years old. She's from Victoria, Australia. She's been sober since January 16th, 2019. And in her interview, she says that getting sober was the best thing she's ever done for herself. Hey guys, be sure to follow Recovery Elevator on Instagram. And it's basically just me and my dog, Ben, doing cool shit sober. And before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The three most important lessons I've learned while quitting drinking are, we can't do this alone, we need accountability, and a supportive community is key. In the private unsearchable Facebook groups Cafe RE, you're going to get all three and much more. What does private mean? Well, these groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who's in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to ditch the booze. These groups are capped at under 350 members to ensure a quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking doesn't have to suck. In fact, it can be a lot of fun. For $19 a month, you too can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and much more. Oh yeah, you'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. Some topics, concepts are easier to cover and they make sense. This one's a little more obscure, um, but it's a neat one, so, so stick with me on this. Okay, so I saw an internet meme from TMJ or the Minds Journal that I loved and I want to share it with you guys. Here it goes. Only in my pain did I find my will. Only in my chaos did I learn to be still. Only in my fear did I find my might. Only in my darkness did I see my light. Okay, so we're starting to see a theme emerge here. Uh, and I've added a couple more lines, so here we go. Only through my self-loathing was I able to love myself. Only through my fears was I able to see how little it has ever served me. Only through guilt was I able to see that all humans make mistakes, and I'm human. Only through shame did I realize that I don't owe anyone in life an explanation ever again. Only through my failures was I able to see what I was doing wrong and then make the necessary corrections. Only through blacking out was I able to recognize the misery of living without light. Only with a crushing headache after a heavy night of drinking was I able to appreciate a clear mind. Only through my addiction was I able to see the path that I didn't want to take and clearly see the path that I did want to take. I had to drink 34,786 beers before realizing that no beer would ever quench that thirst. I had to drink 3,600 sea breezes before realizing two things. It doesn't live up to the name, and sitting on a beach feeling an actual breeze by the sea is infinitely better. I had to consume enough PBRs to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool to realize that inner peace doesn't come from an external substance. So do we see a trend here? Like I mentioned, we're seeing a trend starting to emerge. 
So this is what early 20th century philosopher Alan Watts called the backwards law. And that's where we usually experience pain, duress, suffering before we experience the bliss on the other side. It's tough to recognize what's wrong, what's out of control, unless we are pinged with symptoms of distress. So this is where the concept gets interesting because this is also Newton's first law of motion. Yeah, so we're going to bring some quantum science in to explain of what's happening here. Okay, so Newton's first law states that every object will remain in uniform motion unless compelled to change its state by the action of an external force. The key point here is that if there is no net force acting on an object, then the object will maintain a constant velocity. In our case, this net force applied to our drinking is uncomfortable emotions, anxiety, depression, headaches, job loss, forgetting to pay rent, DUIs, etc. These are consequences from drinking, both in our internal and our external environment. So if there are no repercussions after drinking, then it continues forward unchallenged. As drinking or an addiction can ramp up, the force applied against the addiction needs to get stronger in order to change the momentum or trajectory. This is why when we initially grapple with drinking, we have the intuition alcohol is, is a problem. We at first are inconvenienced. We have slight headaches, maybe a little bit of emotional guilt, some anxiety in the solar plexus area. Maybe we're late to work a couple times because we can't get out of bed. We use our allotted sick days for hangovers. You get the point. But when the addiction starts going, as in we're losing more control, then we start experiencing stronger forces acting against the addiction in the form of a job loss, a loved one leaves us, perhaps multiple traffic violations, bankruptcy, drunken car crashes, things like that. The force acting upon the addiction in the external environment will match the loss of control and turmoil in the internal environment. You dig? Are you guys with me here still? I hope this is making sense. This isn't an analogy to Newton's first law, but this is actually what's happening. Physics and quantum science show how the progression of alcoholism unfold. How as drinking progresses, rock bottoms get worse. So knowledge alone won't get you out of this pickle, but do your best to wrap your head around this one. If you ignore the nudge to quit drinking, it will eventually become an elbow to the shoulder, then a kick to the groin, then a full Andre the Giant body slam. Okay, so wait a second, Paul. So if my drinking is moving forward unopposed, then where does the force come from to stop the addiction if it's unopposed? Well, even though some of you haven't made the decision to move forward in life without alcohol on the conscious level or with the mind, the body, which is a reflection of the mind, will take the first steps forward in this journey. It will create a clear intention, which is to quit drinking, and then bingo, opposite forces in equal or slightly higher relation to the addiction will start to show up. This is a fascinating concept, which can be applied to anything that's holding us back in life. It's this intention or the declaration to quit drinking that manifests the lessons we need to experience in order to quit drinking. So with these forces acting upon or against our addiction, it's important we realize that it's happening for us, that it's working in our advantage. You might wake up with anxiety and say, shit, 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 shit. I just want this to go away. But it's important to recognize that that feeling is there for our benefit. It serves a purpose. And that purpose is, hey, it's time to quit drinking. All right, now please don't take away from this episode that I'm indicating you need to go out, do additional field research, aka drink again, 
and experience more pain so the bliss can come. All the pain, anxiety, depression, shame, guilt, anger you've already felt from alcohol is more than enough needed to ditch the booze. Guys, trust me on this one. (laughs) Please don't call BS on this one because it's not bullshit. If you're listening to this podcast right now, you've already experienced enough pain and suffering from alcohol needed to move forward in life without the booze. Trust me, life is so much better on the other side. Before we hear from Sarah, let's hear from today's sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. That's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply for your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. That's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R, ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Sarah, how are you? Oh, I'm great, Paul. Thanks for having me. Sarah, it's great to have you. We had to go back and forth, figure out the time zones and and figure out the time to get this interview going, but I'm so glad to hear your story. How are you doing today? Well, I'm just, I've got this big smile on my face because I'm excited to be doing this interview with you. And as I said, before we started recording, it's so cool to hear your voice. Well, thank you. And you mentioned you've listened to a couple podcast episodes. I appreciate it deeply. It's so fun to connect with listeners. And and you had to get up early to do this interview, right? Uh, well before 6 a.m., I imagine. What, is, what time is it there right now? It's 6 a.m. here. All right. And it is 2 p.m. or 2, yeah, 2 p.m. here in Bozeman, Montana. Technology is incredible. I love Skype. Uh, we can connect all across the globe. I'm ready to do this. How about you? All right, let's go and give this a good crack. (laughs) All right, Sarah, that sounds like a plan. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Okay, so my sobriety tracker is saying four months and 22 days today. Nice job. And before we hit record, you mentioned it was January 16th, 2019. Nice job. How's it feel? Oh, it's, it's the best thing I've ever done for myself. So feeling pretty good. Okay, absolutely. And give listeners... A little background about yourself, Sarah, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family? Most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Okay, so I'm from Melbourne in Australia, but I was originally born in the Top End in Darwin in the Northern Territory. So I've coined down here the Down Under of Down Under. <laughs> okay. And it's a, it's a big city down here. Yeah, and I'm currently 36 years old and I'm single and I am studying counseling and coaching. So for fun, okay. I love reading nonfiction books on human behavior, psychology and self-development and particularly relationships as well as I may move into that area of counseling one day. But initially I was actually thinking of going into alcohol and drugs because that kind of seems like a really good fit for me. Sure. That was going to be my next question, actually, is what type of counseling you want to get into. And you said possibly the addiction field? 
Well, yeah, and it's it's quite funny because initially when I was going into counselling, I I knew that AOD was a an area, but I thought, oh, I don't want to work with you know alcoholics. That's quite ironic, but that's how I felt at the time, and now it's quite the opposite, you know. Yeah, and for perhaps the biggest classification is the real life experience. You can do all the book work, do all the coursework, all the classes, but if you don't have firsthand experience of what addiction can feel like, the obsession, the drinking, how hard it can be to overcome it, it'd be tough to relate to to clients. And I feel like we need to leverage this experience in the workforce and especially in this arena. Sometimes I've spoken with counselors and therapists who are not open about them being in recovery. And I say, hey, why not? It's it's like a superpower you've got. You're going to be able to relate to your clients who are dealing with alcohol on a far deeper level. And I know in Bozeman, Montana, uh, there's a shortage of, of, what are they called? It's not addictionologists, but you know, alcohol addiction counselors, basically. There's a shortage of them. And uh, I know I looked for one when I, got, when I began this journey in 2012 and 13, and I couldn't find one. Now there's a couple more. But uh, yeah, I think you've got a bright future ahead with that. So that's awesome. Yeah, thanks. And and I think you're quite right. It's it's a hard area to work in. It's challenging. As you know, we're not ready to give up alcohol until we're ready, you know, and there's no talking us out of that. So it can be a challenging area to work in. It's a little scary, but I will, as you said, I'm going to be very open about my drinking past because I think that has helped me when I have been working with counsellors in the past. It's made me feel that I've felt that that rapport with them and that's part of really good counseling is building a really solid relationship and the empathy and that comes from knowing what someone's been through yeah absolutely the camaraderie of sobriety is intense it is and and sarah give listeners background with your drinking talk about when you first started when you first realized that alcohol might not be serving the purpose you thought was there any rock bottom moments yeah get us up to speed i'm excited to hear your story Okay. It's like where to start. I, these Our drinking pasts are just so chaotic. Well, mine, mine is. And I guess if I started at 13 is when I started drinking and having listened to quite a lot of your podcasts, that seems to be quite a common age to start drinking. And from the word go, I couldn't moderate. I was in a 100% from that day. And I definitely noticed that it gave me this sense of belonging. Again, something that just sounds so common. Without a drink, I felt always on the outside, wanting to be in the group, you know, have a close group of friends. And when I was drunk, I felt like I had that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And over the years, I found myself really gravitating towards friendships with people who love to drink. So that really nurtured my love of alcohol because, you know, I wasn't hanging out with people who were kind of occasionally having a drink or who had any negative thoughts about it. My friends all loved to party. And that didn't, in that, because of that, I wasn't able to see that it was a not a healthy way to live. I kind of knew it. I, there was a vague knowing, but there was all this support um, around it. Well, well, quick question. When did you first have the notion that it wasn't a healthy way to live? I don't know if I knew so much that it wasn't a healthy way to live for a very long time. But what I did know was that the repercussions of my drinking were terrible straight off the bat. I was already completely incongruent with who I wanted to be. You know, every time I drank, I would do something that I was ashamed of. 
So this is even in your teenage years. You, you, you said when you started, the, the off switch just didn't exist. Yeah, for me, it was just not there. Gotcha. So there wasn't like a phase where you were like a normal drinker, per se? No, it just never was. Yeah, I hear that on the podcast, how you know, they gradually built it up. But for me, it was just straight away. It wasn't every day straight away because, you know, being 13, you know, where do you get access to alcohol every day, you know? Um, but I definitely was keen on when am I going to drink again, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, talk to us about your 20s and uh, bring us up to speed. So in my 20s, oh, by the time I was 17, I had something you mentioned before that you had a calendar on the wall. And I had a similar thing. Well, I had a calendar on the wall and I was ticking off days that I didn't drink. Wait, this is when you were 17. You had this system into place. Okay. Yeah, I remember I would get maybe one, two ticks maximum on that on the calendar. And I remember just being so incredibly frustrated, not understanding why I couldn't get more than two days of not drinking up. And I would always just end up discarding the calendar. <laughs> you know, this isn't working, you know. But yeah, it's 17. And it's insane, you know. Yeah. Well, can you explain a little bit what that feeling was like when even at age 17, you couldn't figure it out? Do you remember what that felt like? Well, it was shame. It was basically I felt inadequate as a human. I thought, am I broken? What is wrong with me? Why can't I stop like everybody else? So it was all about me and my inadequacy as a human. <laughs> you know, I, I really didn't understand it. It was it was a mystery to me. Because I had the best of intentions when I would go out. I wasn't someone that actually said, I'm going out to get drunk. That was actually very rarely me. But every time I went out, I got drunk. So it was like, uh, it was so confusing. Yeah. And so 19 years ago, you had a system in place to help control your drinking. System didn't work. I had the same calendar technique. I also threw it off the wall one day in a, in, in a fit of rage. I do remember that clearly. You got 19 years left. What happened? Okay, so yeah, just continued, um, you know, into my twenties. Just I was a bar girl, so I I just head out to bars with friends, or sometimes just on my own and find new friends. And I remember at the age twenty one, I was living on my own, and I had such freedom to drink when I wanted. And I recall sitting out the front of my house, often at the at the front of the flat, and I would sit there with a six pack of beer at 21 years old, on my phone and my cigarettes at the time and just drink that six-pack of beer. But I'd be on the phone desperately needing, feeling like I needed to connect with humans. So I'm there so lonely on my own drinking and yet so disconnected, like so disconnected from everybody else. And I found myself one night, there's a park down the end of my street, and I found myself thrown to the ground. Like it wasn't my choice. I was just like thrown to the ground in surrender, just so lost praying to some sort of higher power, just saying, oh, my gosh, please help me. I can't I can't go on like this. I, I don't know what to do. And this was a 21. And I just wow. remember the desperation of not knowing what to do. And it wasn't – I was holding down jobs, you know, and I had some friendships, but mostly around drinking, you know. So I was, I was fairly high-functioning. All through these years I have been fairly high-functioning, but – I was already desperate at 21, on my knees in a park late at night, just begging for help. Yeah, so. Were your prayers answered? I mean, it sounds like 19 years later they were, but uh, yeah, what happened after that? Oh, gosh. As I said, it's all a bit chaotic in my mind, um, but 
They weren't. No, they were not answered. No. I did continue to drink and I continued also to do geographicals, more so within Melbourne at that stage. I was just moving, you know, house probably every year. Always, always in my mind, oh, this time will be different. When I move into a new house, I won't drink when I go into this house. And within a couple of days or the first day, because you've convinced yourself, oh, I'll have a drink to celebrate moving in. You know, there's always an excuse. Yeah, so I would move and move. And then around the age of 28, I decided to go overseas. And I thought, I'm going to find myself. I'm going to sort this stuff out. You know, on my travels, I'll really get to know myself and I'll know what I want in life. You know, I was also really struggling with my purpose in life as well. Sure. Yeah. So I went overseas and instead of finding myself, I just found a whole lot of bars, you know. <laughs> I just, I look back on that time and it's it really saddens me to think that, you know, there were some wonderful experiences, but there was also, it feels like such wasted time in a way because I left Australia to go see the world and instead I basically just drank the entire time. So you're traveling the world, you're realizing that you're not finding yourself in a bar drinking. When do you realize it's time to go back to Australia and that maybe quitting drinking is 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 part of the grander scheme of things? Well, I had actually been to AA probably at 23 in Australia briefly and given up for about six months. And then so I, so I knew that AA existed. So I ended up actually going to AA in Scotland and England and you know, I stayed sober, I would get six months up here and then three months up there. And those were some of the most joyous times of my travels. Well, let me ask you a question. What do you think happened after those six months? You said those were some of the most joyous times of my, of my travels. I just, you're away from alcohol for six months. What happened? My headspace happened. It, it told me that I was cured. Um, I, you know, I had evolved in those six months. And so you know, emotionally, I was probably more capable of drinking moderately. Okay. And that was, as you know, from, I don't know how many podcasts you've done now, but I, you know, this moderation caper didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. We're doing 228 episodes right now. And I do know the emotional discourse that can go on. The addiction can lie and make a compelling case in our own voice. And, and, and I get it. There was several bouts of sobriety. I went two and a half years. And then I convinced myself that, again, I could go out and drink. Picked up right where I left off. Yeah, and so did you make it back to Australia? Is that where you got where you got sober? Uh, yes, yeah, so I came back to Australia in 2012. And since then, my drinking, when I was younger, it was more, there was a lot of binge drinking and a lot of occasions where I do stuff that was really epic, like things you could write a book about uh, that I was really embarrassed about. But then as I've gotten older, I tended to pull away from the pub crowd and just spend time more with like closer friends or at home at drinking. So I got into a little less trouble, but the drinking became more of a daily thing. So over the last couple of years, it's become very hard not to drink every night. And you're drinking every night alone or with other people? Depended on the week, you know, sometimes I'd be meeting friends somewhere. But um, by the last couple of years, I I was still quite social. But what I would find is that when I was out with people, I was really edging to get home so I could have a drink. And I would make some sort of an excuse to, yeah, to basically come home and spend some time with my wine. 
And I also found it was just my favorite place. By the end of it, I just wanted to come home and sit on the couch and drink drink a bottle of wine. Like that was my happy place. And at one point, I said to my ex-partner, this was in the last six months, I said, the only thing that makes me happy is alcohol. Like that came out of my mouth. Whoa. Was, was that like a, a red flag? Did you even say that out loud? You're like, whoa. What, what, did, what did your partner say with that? He was super understanding because he didn't really – he knew that I couldn't really stop when I started, but we were only seeing each other probably on the weekends or every fortnight. So he didn't know I had to say to him when I decided to give up, I said, you don't know how much I actually drink, which was really, it was a hard thing to say. Yeah, but he was incredible. He was incredibly supportive and um, I was very lucky in that. When was this? When did you say that to him? That was about... About five months ago, yeah. And then I, I actually broke I broke up with him two weeks into sobriety. <laughs> when you're thinking, when you're thinking very clearly. Yeah, and I'm going to try to make a point here. Was that the first time you came out to somebody that said, "Hey, look, I'm only I can only have fun when I'm drinking" or something in that regard? No, I've been fairly honest over my life. Like my mum has known about my struggles. Uh, my friends, I'll let them know. They they never really pointed it out to me. I think they didn't know how much I was drinking on my own, so that was part of the problem there. Yeah, so it, but it felt big because I was telling someone that I really cared about and I didn't know how they were going to react. But other than that, I've let the cat out of the bag uh, to pretty much anyone that will listen. Yeah, I'm on the street, and if it comes up, I'm letting people know. <laughs> All right. Well, the uh, the idea that I'm trying to relay to listeners is when we we when when the conscious mind and the unconscious mind both come together, make the statement of accountability, burning the ships, say, "Hey, this is more of an issue than than I thought. Let's talk about this." That's usually when the rubber hits the road. That's uh, that was the case with myself and for several hundred others that I've spoken to. And so this was five months ago. Um, talk to us about the lead us up to your sobriety date. Was there a rock bottom moment on January 15th, 2019? No, it's the very, the very common saying of, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. I think that's the, the consensus for most people. People wake up one day and there's no more fighting. There's no more rules to put into place. There's no more responsible drinking or no more moderate drinking tests to put in. And, and that's more of the common theme. So what was it like when you woke up that day on January 16th, sick and tired of being sick and tired, and you were just done with it? Tell us more. Oh, gosh, because I'd been there many days before, you know, the, the first day of not drinking. Uh, but this one, I think I started out on the pink cloud for sure. And that pink cloud lasted about two months. Um, the only thing that was there was this bit of trepidation because it wasn't my first rodeo. So there was that, oh, what if it doesn't work this time? But there was also a lot of hope um, and optimism around that. So, yeah, I just I got to an AA meeting that first day because I knew that the times that I'd had the longest stretches of sobriety, I had been active in AA. Now, are you still active in AA? I am. I am. I, I'm only going about once to twice a week. I would like to be more of a two to three times a week person. Uh, but I also do attend things like uh, last weekend, there was an AA Back to the Future Ball. So I went along to that and we all danced like idiots, completely sober. So that was really wonderful. And yeah, and also I'm just doing as much volunteer work as I can. I'm, I'm trying to, well, I'm going to be starting work on the AA phone line 
soon. So you volunteer four mm-hmm. hours a week on that just to take calls from people who are just looking for information around about AA and meetings and, and the like. Gotcha. So that first month of sobriety, what was it like? Did you encounter any obstacles? Did you have any cravings? Did you ever have the cognitive distance where the mind was trying to convince you, hey, let's go back. We've been this amount of days without a drink. We don't have a problem. Yeah. It wasn't so much like my old headspace used to be like that. It used to be, oh, I've gone a week, so I'm actually fine. Obviously, I don't have a problem, but I've actually crossed into a different way of thinking this time around. So when I was in AA years ago, I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, what if I can never drink again? That was that was my way of thinking. And now when I'm in AA or just in general, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what if I do drink again? And that for me is a very there's a clear distinction there in the way I'm thinking. So I'm not running on fear, but there's a healthy fear there that I need to do what I can not to drink again because that's not, I don't want that anymore. Whereas I always look for the differences in meetings. Now I'm looking for those similarities and I'm really grateful for that because there's, there's, there's a difference there that I can, that's powerful. I I, I can feel it. There always is a a mindset shift when one that goes from one, a mindset of fear to a mindset of opportunity. It sounds like you, you you just hit that at the same time. And there is a healthy fear. You've heard me say this many times in the podcast that your fear can get you sober, but it won't keep you sober. However, even with me as I'm approaching year five of sobriety, there is a healthy fear in the background. And that's not the fuel for my sobriety by any means. But occasionally I, I think of it. I'm like, whoa, like, yeah, what in the hell would happen? There's There's no way, I won't even test the waters. I don't even want to touch that stuff because there still is a a small fear that, uh, yeah, this, this, this thing, this, this train called life could derail fast. And you mentioned earlier that you woke up on that day, sick and tired of being sick and tired, but it felt different. What do you think is different about this time? Well, I hadn't, I was thinking about this yesterday about when I was in the chaos of my drinking, you know, when there was parties and there was a lot of activity. I didn't ever have the opportunity to be really quiet with my, my my alcoholism or my addiction. And when I was in the stage of it being very humdrum, same thing every night, there was enough quiet there for me to say or to feel and recognize that alcohol has held me back in so many ways and that my potential, there is no chance of it ever being fulfilled if I don't stop drinking. And I have, I'm a passionate person who wants to, to do beautiful things in this world and I'm just seeing that being squandered. So essentially now I have this deep desire to make a contribution and I know with 100% surety that I cannot do that if I've got alcohol in my life because the past is is evidence of that. Yeah, it's difficult to reach anything close to a full potential in life with, with alcohol. Uh, yeah, and that was a big catalyst for me. I recognized that clearly in 2009. Um, that I just wasn't reaching my full potential. And you hear that phrase, full potential. But, I mean, I was at like like half to less than half potential. So, yeah, well, we can see that. Uh, we need to give it up. And then this is going to lead me nicely into the next question. What's on your bucket list in sobriety? What are these beautiful contributions that you want to give back to? Oh, wow. Bucket list. Okay. Well, really trying to become more of a dedicated student with my counseling you know, I, when I was drinking, I was such a procrastinator, like next level procrastinator. And I'm working around that now. And I'm trying to get very clear on why I want to be a counselor. And one of those things is that I, 
I want to get quite good at public speaking down the track, which is something I'm definitely not good at now, but it's a wonderful goal to have because I'd love to do some sort of group healing or therapy and be able to inspire people, you know, with in numbers, you know. And, yeah, so that's a really big one career-wise is just to be able to inspire people. And otherwise, I... I have lots of things. So I love to dance and I haven't been doing that. And I was actually quite over, not overwhelmed, but I teared up the other day and it was the first time in my sobriety that I got angry with alcohol. I was very angry with it because I realized that I love dancing so much and I've spent so much of my life not dancing. And so what I'm going to do is get into either rock and roll or swing dancing. And I think it's quite a good thing to do because also there's a, a kind of social scene attached to that and a lot of those people aren't going to be drinking a lot so that that's incredibly important for me to do so sorry you just wanted bucket list no that's great that's great and you're doing fantastic with the interview you're a great public speaker sarah i gotta disagree with you on that statement you're doing fantastic and you mentioned the dancing came back is there anything else that has come back in these last five months Wow, gosh, it's so hard to put into words what's come back because it's just, it's only been five months, but it feels like a lot longer in the sense of how much I've achieved, you know, because I I feel like I'm being quite courageous in my sobriety and I'm doing that because I know that I need, there's that whole thing about, I don't think it's enough to put, simply put down the drink. You really need to address what's going on inside of you and so through, over these last five months, I've seen this internal growth because I'm doing a lot of work around limiting beliefs and looking at my automatic thoughts and really getting to know myself. So I guess what's come back is is myself. I'm getting to, to get to know the real me and also something that's coming back that I don't know if I ever had it, to be honest, but it's consistency. So I was never consistent with sticking with anything, but now I have like I'm doing a miracle morning every morning without fail. Oh, there you go. I've never done anything, you know, without fail, <laughs> like consistently. So um, that alone, I think overall self-belief, that's what it is. I'm starting to get my self-esteem and self-worth is growing. It's not there yet, but I'm actually able to see now very clearly the insecurities that I have. Whereas when I was drinking, mm-hmm. I was covering those up. And I have a lot of insecurities, but it's okay now because I know that I'm working on them. Sarah, a powerful thing came back to me about a year into sobriety. And so do you remember when you were a kid? And a lot of listeners can resonate with this. Most of us have this feeling when we were kids that we could do anything that we put our mind to, that anything was possible. Well, that feeling was crushed in drinking. And as my addiction took hold, but right around oh, month eight to ten, that feeling came back and it hasn't left that if I wanted, I can do whatever I want. And like you said, that all beliefs are limiting. I fully believe that. Um, and, and Sarah, earlier you mentioned that quitting drinking, putting down the drink was just the beginning and we need to go internal. And I fully agree with that. We need to take it at our own pace. I don't want to be intimidating to limiters or intimidate listeners out there and say, look, this is just a small portion of it. It's a huge portion of it, quitting drinking, putting down the drink at the beginning, but then our journey eventually will fold internal. And that's awesome that you've already realized that. What are some of the techniques, tools, resources that you've used or how do you go internal and how do you gauge the emotional state and what happens when you do find yourself in a precarious emotional state? Okay. <laughs> I'm doing a lot of work around this. 
I was off and running straight away because I actually did a fair bit of insight work when I was drinking, but it never took because it just doesn't get momentum when you, you know, you do some really quality work, you'd feel a little bit different, but then you drink on it and it just, it never, it never um, took. So now I read, what book am I reading at the moment? There's one called Loving What Is by Byron Katie. Mm-hmm. And that one's really good for me at the moment and Inner Work by Margaret Paul. And both of those are really looking at your thought processes. The inner work is looking at you've got your adult self and your inner child. So with the adult self, you're, you're looking at talking to your inner child and communicating to your inner child. And basically you do that by – there's a all of these you need to really get into a quiet place with yourself, either through meditation or just, you know, placing your hands on your body like your heart and just really just going inwards and listening quietly to what, what you hear. And, uh, yes, yeah, so there's a lot of books that I'm utilizing for that. Yeah, sorry, what was – I've lost track of that question a little bit. Yeah, you did great. I'm not familiar with that second book. And listeners are probably confused saying, okay, my, my adult self's got to talk to my, my child self. How do I, how exactly do I facilitate this dialogue? Is there like a PDF I can download? Um, but it doesn't have to be that confusing. In fact, if you just put yourself in a quiet environment, like you said, quiet to mind, most likely you did done through meditation. A lot of this internal dialogue from the conscious, the unconscious mind from sub personalities, they're all going to start to talk without you doing anything. And that's kind of the confusing thing about meditation is it's not about getting anything is it's not about attaining anything. And a lot of the, a lot of the milestones of this journey aren't about getting, aren't about compiling external, uh, external items. It's all internal things that if you let the body be in an environment conducive it will heal on its own does that make sense oh absolutely no absolutely okay so what results are you seeing with the uh, the communication with your your adult self to the child self it's just bringing up well basically you go in with a with a sense of curiosity and just pose questions to your inner child and for me it's just bringing up old beliefs that i've held for a very long time and a lot of the kind of, well, it's, you know how we get triggered by things in life. You know, it's it's helping me to see why I get triggered by things. And by bringing light to that, I'm then able to respond to those triggers differently. It doesn't happen every time. Like I was triggered just yesterday by an old core wounding. Um, but I was able to go away, kind of compose myself a lot quicker. And now I'm, I'm so hyper aware of my triggers when they happen now. And I'm not just letting them be triggers. I'm making the effort to change them. There you go. And one technique that I have used recently, I'm I'm familiar with the adult and the child personalities is when I would get into a difficult emotional state, a painful life moment or your tough life situation, I would depart. I would leave via alcohol, but there's always the child personality that has always been there, always will be there. And now when I get to these spots, I reinforce this to the child personality, I actually tell them like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here with you. As you mentioned, quitting drinking is, it's a start. It's a huge start, but we all have rough days. And when these days still happen, I reinforce to this alter personality, which is still there. Say, look, I'm not going anywhere. We, and I mentioned this in like five episodes ago, when you're having a rough day, 
um, talk in terms of we. I say we are together. I'm not leaving you. We are going to get through this. Um, and it's 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 been monumental. It's it's been neat. And Sarah, let's back it up a little bit here. Why do you think you drank? Is there was there something in childhood? Is there something that you're covering up using alcohol to cover up? Um, we've all heard the, the the phrase drinking is but a symptom. What do you think the why is behind the drinking? Oh wow. There's a few things I could kind of point at. I, I do wonder though, because my parents met in rehab. <laughs> so the genetic if you know, I'm still working out the science, you know, the science behind it and the what I believe about alcoholism. So but they met in rehab, so I don't know if I had a genetic predisposition to this. But also I had a lot of I had a fair bit of I did have some trauma in my childhood and I felt a lot of kind of rejection around that. And I think when I basically I moved a lot. My mother was in the Navy and we moved around a lot. I moved every year of my life, um, new house and new friends. So I had to adapt very quickly to making new friends and I also had to let go of a lot of people. So by that stage, I had a very um, tumultuous upbringing and my mother also went through some pretty full-on stuff. She had very severe post-traumatic stress disorder and it was just my mother and I in the house and I basically took on, you can get kind of secondary PTSD and I believe I got that. Um, by the time I was 13, from the age of well, grade five, I'm not sure how old you are there, maybe nine, I'm just throwing that out there, that was when I started feeling quite anxious being around my 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 mum. She's beautiful. I love her, but that was just it is what it is. And then so by this age of thirteen, I think I was quite anxious and stressed. I felt quite stressful in the family home. And yeah, so I think it was a way for me to relax, but also to feel like I finally belonged, because I never felt like I belonged anywhere. And listeners, the why is important to uncover, but it needs to be done at your own pace. I started exploring the why more in depth at year three, year three and a half of sobriety. And uh, I don't think I would have been ready to do it in the first year or two. It's just a lot of it's like just gaining your footing again. But again, like I said, there is no attaining. There is no going after and finding the why. If you sit or just go through life without alcohol, eventually the why will start to come to the surface. So there is no need to rush it. Say, hey, I've been sober for, for six weeks. Let's go after the why. Let's figure out what I'm drinking to cover up. If that's the case for you, it'll come to the surface in its own time. So I love how you said that. Now, next question, Sarah, what have you learned about yourself along the way? There are so many learnings, but I think it was something very much she said before. One of the major things is I never believed in myself. I would look around and for one example, I wanted to be a psychologist from quite a young age and I would look around and I would think, no, but you need to be smart to do that. And it's a different type of person that becomes a psychologist, not not me. Or I would constantly be comparing myself to other people and I just never aimed high. I had no big dreams whatsoever. And I had, like you described, this really strong sense maybe three or four weeks into sobriety that, oh, my gosh, I can do anything. It's a beautiful feeling. It is. It's amazing. And it is, it's a, like you said, a beautiful feeling to finally believe that you can make your dreams a reality. And now I, I haven't done enough of it yet. I, I want to start really writing down what, what these dreams are. It does wane. There are moments where my insecurities come back in and it feels a bit big, but that's to be, 
that's going to happen when you're not someone that's been doing that all your life. So I've just got to remember that and tell myself that was the old you, the new you believes in yourself and let's, let's, you know, go for gold. Yeah, that's definitely one of the biggest things. Just understanding that I have potential and that I am now capable of doing what it takes to, to achieve the things I want in life. And I have a contribution to make. Absolutely. And it sounds like you're, you're going after these goals. You're, you're in school for counseling to go back and to help people. This is incredible. Nice job. Thank you. Yeah. And, and Sarah, what are your thoughts on relapse? Oh, gosh. <laughs> How often did I relapse? I think I've heard you say like 5,000 times. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just it's just part of the course, you know, like it, lucky. There are some lucky folks out there that just, you know, they go, ooh, you know, I had a hangover that day. That was horrible. I never want to have a hangover again. I'm just going to stop drinking. And that's insane, you know, to me. Yeah, me too. My relapse taught me so much, you know, and it, it didn't, I didn't know that at the time. But looking back without those relapses, I couldn't have learned how I felt being sober to compare that to being drunk or, you know, daily drinking. And I couldn't have had those snippets of what it felt like to start to put my life back together. And just the little things that I learned in AA during those periods of time, you know, keep coming back or one day at a time, like all the little sayings, they would still be there with me and the serenity prayer when I was out drinking. And also just knowing that AA was there it was both a good and bad thing. I think I always knew it was there in the back of my mind. So I can just go back to AA when I'm ready, which is both a blessing and not so much because it can be an excuse as well. But sure. I knew that it was there. I knew I could go back and I always did. You know, it was always there and I always felt like welcomed back in. Yeah, Sarah, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Worst memory from drinking, Sarah? Okay, so I'm going to follow in the steps of many previous interviewees, and I, I think there's a reason for this, you know, that basically it's the no memory memories and just more so the feeling that you feel in that moment of dread and pure horror, just trying to piece the night together. And sometimes the night was worse than you thought and sometimes it was better. But in that moment upon waking, it was just, oh, my gosh, I can feel it now. I can feel that disgusting feeling of, yeah, I, you can't, a better word, dread and horror. That's exactly how I felt. Yeah, it's a consistent response for valid reasons, blacking out. Yeah, it's like part of your life is missing. Uh, next question. We've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment saying, oh, I need to quit drinking? Okay, this is, <laughs> I kind of laugh at this, but at the same time, I felt mortified after this. So essentially I was I was in Scotland and I'd been invited on a like a yacht for a week a free I was gifted a free trip on a yacht and a 6-year-old Danish gaff cutter and it went really well I hadn't been drinking for 6 months and I had decided that I would drink at sea you know <laughs> and there was there were seven other guests and it went fine for the first 6 nights and then we docked in the small village that I was actually living in for the night so we would stop there and we we're, were going to end the journey the next day and basically there was a massive cruise liner that was also docked there just at the end of the pier and we had been drinking and everyone else went to bed and I somehow managed to board this cruise liner it was it was there was no lights on everyone was asleep managed to board the cruise liner and I've gotten I thought I was James Bond I'm doing like commando roles around the cruise liner and I go into their bar and I steal two bottles of whiskey nice job 
And then I James Bond my way out of there. I'd love to see the footage of this. And I'm walking down the pier and then I hear a excuse me. And I was I turned around and there was like a security guard or someone from the boat and they said, What have you got there? And basically I was busted. And I was so mortified and basically I didn't want to stay on the boat. So I walked down, it was raining, and I walked down this for about a kilometre down the road to this woman's house that I knew. It was 3 a.m. or so in the morning and I knocked on her door and she was a 90-year-old blind woman. And I'm knocking on her door at 3 a.m. in the morning, drunk, looking for refuge. So essentially I woke up in her house not knowing whose house it was when I woke up. And just all the memories flooding back in. And this town was a town of 50 people. And everybody knew what happened. So that was a big, big oh shit moment. Because there was no hiding this. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, Sarah, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Oh, my plan in sobriety. Let's have a look. So okay, I wrote some notes on this one too. Yeah, I just, I, I want to like really thrive and lead a fulfilling and joyous life. I, I know what it's like living a life of a binge drinker and I want to know what it's like to live the opposite kind of life. So I want to continue doing my regular insight work. I want to build up a sober network of friends because I find that's incredibly helpful. I want to volunteer with AA on the phone line and I just want to kind of continue building up my toolbox of life skills and Part of that is to tap into my creativity and my, like, physical energy. And I don't know. It's not super clear what I'm doing. I'm still getting clear on my future from here. But I do know the things that are working, and I'm going to continue to do those, including my miracle morning. I feel I wake up and I'm already proud of myself an hour an hour into the day. I've already done all these amazing things for myself, and that's really working for me. So that one's something I'm going to continue to build upon. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Okay, so again, a very simple one, and I mentioned it earlier, but it's one day at a time. And the, when I first used to hear this, I didn't get it. Like I, I was just like, yeah, yeah, one day at a time. It didn't sink in. But now it's really just as simple as asking myself, well, can I just not drink for today? And that's always, yeah, that's easy. And instead of projecting myself forward like a lot of people do, you know, to a wedding down the track or a holiday coming up, you know, or I, I really want to live in the country on a farm and I always imagined myself sitting on the veranda at the end of the day with a with a drink. And that's the one projection I think I still occasionally have. And But what I, I do to stop that is just to live for now and know that when the time comes, I'm sure that that's not going to be an issue, you know. And what parting piece of guidance, Sarah, can you give the listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or have already done it? Okay. Again, another thing, I really feel like I'm repeating a lot of previous interviewees, but, you know, there's gold where there's gold. People repeat things for a reason. So one part is get really honest with yourself. And, like, this can be really scary, but I believe it's, like, a vital part of getting and staying sober. So one question I feel, you know, one can ask themselves is like, how long have I been trying to moderate and is it working? So for me, I tried to moderate for 20 plus years and it didn't work that entire time, but yet I was in denial, you know? So what had worked that whole time, yeah, was basically staying in denial. I was incredibly skilled at that. So I just think asking different questions instead of saying, am I an alcoholic? Do I have a drinking problem? Say, 
what if I didn't drink? Do, how would my life look different? I feel like, yeah, the questions you ask sometimes make a world of difference. They do for me. Yeah, sometimes if you ask yes or no low-level questions, you'll get low-level answers, yes or no answers. But you go a step further and ask questions like that. Yeah, you'd be surprised. I love it. And Sarah, before we depart, give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic gift line. Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't realize it was a line. I forgot. So it's a little bit more of a, a tiny story, but it's not too long. Is that okay? Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Oh, you might be an alcoholic if you're at your ex-boyfriend's house and you tell him, I'm just going to go meet a friend for drinks and it's lunchtime. So your plan is to have a couple. Fast forward to around 3 or 4 a.m. the next day and your ex-boyfriend's housemate finds you outside of their house and you are three quarters of the way up a tree with the intent to climb up the tree to the second story window to into your boyfriend's room. And he says, when he asks you what you're doing, you say, I'm being a ninja. And you proceed to fall out of the tree onto the ground and laugh like a maniac. So you might be an alcoholic if you do that. There we go. Sarah, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you for getting up bright and early for the interview. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, Paul. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Registration for the Recovery Elevator Asia Adventure Trip is now open. Full details and itinerary are now on the recoveryelevator.com website. This sober trip takes place on January 20th through the 31st, 2020, and will be a trip of a lifetime. On this 12-day trip, we fly into Bangkok, check out this incredible city for a couple days, and then head north to the jungles of Thailand, where we'll be visiting a place called Elephant World. We then make our way into Cambodia, where we check out Angkor Wat and some of the world's most impressive archaeological sites. And built in, we've got awesome recovery workshops as well. So go to recoveryelevator.com for the full itinerary details and get signed up. I can't believe I'm giving Heineken a plug on a recovery podcast, but... Heineken just came out with a 0.0% non-alcoholic beer. Many of you probably already know, but NA, non-alcoholic beers, aren't accurately labeled. So in the process of removing alcohol, the small trace usually still exists in the alcohol. So be careful with non-alcoholic beers in that regard. I have heard stories. Some guy emailed me a long time ago where his wife said, you're right, you can't have beer in the house um, so the husband's like, well, how about, uh, how about non-alcoholic beers? How about O'Doul's? The wife's like, cool, I'm okay with that. Well, it turns out this guy would go in his garage and drink like 30 of these a night. So if you have 30 non-alcoholic beers, yeah, it's probably the same thing of having like seven or eight beers. So be careful with NA beers. And another thing is why are we drinking NA beers? So that's another thing to question. Are you drinking a non-alcoholic beer to, to fit in at the party? So someone will look at you and be like, ah, Dan's got a beer in his hand. And it's no duel. They might not know it's an NA beer. Do you enjoy the taste? I find that one hard to believe. Uh, I only drank beer. I didn't drink beer for the taste. I drank it to, to get hammer-faced. I did. So just question the motives behind drinking an NA beer. Uh, I usually don't drink them because there's a plethora, uh, hundreds of beverages that, in my opinion, taste better. Um, but good for Heineken for recognizing that people want a beer, a non-alcoholic beer, that is fully 0.0. So nice job, Heineken. And guys, July 4th, which is this Thursday, is, is a big holiday. And there's way more behind this holiday than just getting fucked up. And believe me, a drink won't make this July 4th any better. 
So if you've got plans and you're worried about how you're going to make it through without taking a drink, here's what I recommend. Create that accountability before the event happens. Shoot an email, a text, make a phone call to somebody, ideally more than one person that's going to be at the event and say, hey, look, I am not going to be drinking at this event. You don't have to go into why, but just say, hey, I'm not going to be drinking. So please don't offer me a drink. And I'd appreciate your support in this endeavor. I learned this is a powerful technique in early sobriety, how to make it through these events sober. And here's another tip. If you're struggling right now, you're on the struggle bus with alcohol, or maybe you've got five, six, seven days of sobriety, you've got this killer 4th of July event coming up, right? Or your mind's telling you it's going to be incredible, but you don't know if you can make it through sober. It's okay. Give yourself permission to sit these things out. Netflix, Redbox, movies, spas, massages. You get the point. It's okay to sit out these events. Live to see another day is what I'm getting at. So happy July 4th week. Believe me, none of it is better with a drink and life is infinitely better on the other side. Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. I love you guys. Mm -hmm.